This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a Mexican filmmaker based here in the Netherlands. His short film, Inside Voices, can be found on the festival circuit right now, and he is currently working on his first feature film. Next to that, He's one of my personal friends and constant collaborators. Uh, beautiful welcomes to Kiko Mora. Hey, man. How's it going? I'm going pretty well. It's nice to talk to you. It's been a you while. You too. You too. He has. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we begin our discussion, I do like to kick each episode off with a quote about beauty, either from the filmmakers or from philosophy. And as ever, I'm bringing in the philosophy today. So today's quote is, each thing has its own peculiar beauty. Not only everything organic and displayed within the unity of an individuality, but also every inorganic thing, formless things, even every artifact. For all of these reveal the idea through which will is objectified on the lowest levels, provided, as it were, the deepest resonating bass tones of nature. I will reveal who said that a little later on and why I brought that in for this particular discussion. That's beautiful. Oh, yeah. See, we're already getting into the beauty, right? Yeah. Uh, so first, though, uh, Kiko, uh, what started all this for you? Uh, not just uh, filmmaking, but like, you know, I know you're a bit of a horror fan. Uh, when did all of that start up? And then what does horror mean to you? Well, yeah. Okay. So the film started when I was 11. But um... <laughs> Okay. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I grew up on film sets because my dad used to shoot, so that was kind of like my school. Cool. But um, I was a Kubrick fan, you know, like mm-hmm. like the, the the Tarkovsky, Kurosawa, the typical film school rat pack. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Actually, it was my brother who started like really obsessing with finding kind of obscure horror movies. Mm-hmm. like pirated horror movies that we would buy that uh <laughs> on a on a like a burnt dvd you know like mm-hmm. back in mexico city and i remember the one that kind of like detonated it for me which it's not maybe the best horror movie but then i was like wow this is this is fucking smart and 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 it's a movie from the early 2000s called madhouse have you seen that i have not i've heard of it though it's it's not great man like it's kind of it's kind of <laughs> tacky and everything but it had an interesting twist the the the, the characters were uh, complex mm-hmm. i don't know it was like different from nightmare on elm street or child's play right. or all these like horror franchises that as much as i love them to death this was something kind of different so from then on we started like uh diving into korean films like watching the eye or uh, Shutter is that the name, right? Like the the, Shutter, the one yeah. about the photographer, yeah. yeah. And and then I became obsessed with with my brother about finding weird movies, and we really we discovered that we loved being scared. And um, 
like subsequently, like uh, my favorite video games are the Resident Evil uh, series and the Silent Hill, and we did, we have this kind of tradition that uh, every time there was a new Silent Hill, we would play together, and we would wait until sundown, sit next to each other, and right. when someone dies, the the other one gets the controller. But all the decisions would be like discussed. So at points we would pause the game and like talk about the decision for like five minutes. Like I don't think I think you should go through that door. No, 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 because then there was this monster earlier. But <laughs> so I think the love of horror like was brought by my brother, mm-hmm. and then it just like grew, 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 grew inside of me. Now he he still likes horror, but I'm the one who's obsessed with it, and I'm making <laughs> horror films now. <laughs> yeah. I really passed down a torch to you and you just set the world on fire with it, it seems. <laughs> that's that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you have this sort of communal background for it as well. You know, the, your family's involved. You, you kind of had a gateway that was sharing things with somebody else within horror. Do you still have that relationship with the genre now that you like to kind of do a more communal thing? Or is it more of like a personal uh, love of yours? A bit of both. I think uh, my wife, Eivka, she she's grown into like horror way more now mm-hmm. uh, than she used to before we were together. And now she likes pretty much all horror. And she particularly likes like kind of the same horror as I do, which is like deep cerebral horror that um, evoke more emotions than scares mm. in a way. Right. So like basically all the A24 movies. <laughs> <laughs> the whole catalog. Yeah, the whole A24 catalog. And uh, what I was lacking was uh, finding a, a cinema buddy that would mm. want to go see every horror movie because it is here in the Netherlands. I don't know about you, but it is kind of like a frequent answer to, oh, I don't like do you watch horror movies? Ah, no, because they're scary. Mm-hmm. Like, ugh, that's kind of the point, man. <laughs> yeah. I, fi- I always find that funny. It's like, so you're, I mean, I get it. If you don't like to be scared, you could just say, I don't really like them. But yeah, people have that excuse, which is like, but that, yeah, that's almost like saying like, no, I don't wear shirts because they're kind of like warm and restrictive. <laughs> like, like, okay. They protect my skin. I don't really like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't like to moisturize because I feel like my skin is very nice and soft. Yeah. It's it like, all wet uh... then. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, ex- ex- that is exactly right. <laughs> it is a weird argument. <laughs> but uh, funny enough, I don't like to watch uh, horror movies by myself. Sometimes I do, of course. But okay. I do if, if I watch them by myself, I sometimes get too scared, man. And I do have nightmares. <laughs> you know, like I watch horror movies because they scare me. And I love being scared. And it's kind of like a, like a masochistic way. Like um, I think I told you once, like, like getting a tattoo. You know, it fucking hurts and you're like, oh my God, this is horrible. And then you're done. And then the next day you're like, okay, when can I get the next one? When can I get the next tattoo? (laughs) Oh man, I feel so baseline normal again. But that pain was just like awesome for some reason. And and besides having like uh, all my, all my tattoos, when, when I'm starting to think of a new tattoo that I want to get. Like what kind of turns me on is, is that pain? Is that yeah. like, Ooh, I'm going to sit in the chair and I'm going to be the needle in my skin. It's going to fucking suck. But I want that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why either. I, I have the same, like it, I, it scares me before. Like I know we're talking about tattoos instead of movies right now, but like it scares me a bit. Uh, right when I'm sitting in the chair, especially if there's been a long time between tattoos and I'm like, 
oh crap, I think I forgot how it feels. <laughs> here we go. Or it's like a new placement on the, on your body that you're just not used to. And you're like, I don't yeah. know how this is going to respond to this. Um, <laughs> and you're like, nah, I know I've got this. And then it, the, the, the needle hits and you're like, oh, motherfucker. <laughs> yep, that was it. There it is. I have the same with horror movies as well. If you get a either a good scare or at the very least a good effective situation in it, because sometimes the scares yeah. come from like what lingers in your head. Those are the ones that get me when I have, I, I remember the last time I had that, I saw Lake Mungo for the first time about a year ago. Oh, this found footage film, right? I, I haven't seen it. I won't say anything about what got me then, but it just, it is one of the more emotionally effective films I've ever seen. Yeah. And I just remember sitting just kind of quietly afterwards and I couldn't sleep that night very well because I just having, I kept having images in the, in the film in my head, but also you just, it's such a scary movie that just in the shadows, you're just kind of like, uh, hmm. Mm. Like get a little, the way everybody's uncomfortable with the movie, you're like, yeah, I'm a little, I don't really want to, I'm going to close that door. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally, man. Oh, I remember, uh, after watching Hereditary for the first time in the cinema. Uh, oh my God, dude, that's the kind of movie that we, I I left, I went with my brother-in-law and my wife and, and, and some of the people and, when everybody's like talking about the movie and I'm like quiet, which is very, very strange in me. <laughs> Cause I, I will talk out of my ears. Uh, and, um, <laughs> but I was quiet the whole way, the whole way. And then at night I, ha- I woke up and, and I, I went, I like crawled next to my wife and, and then like spooned her because I was terrified, man. Aww. I was so, so fucking scared. And I enjoy it. It's like eating spicy food. As a Mexican, I can tell you that. Mm, I, as a Southerner, I understand. Yeah, like it's spicy and you're like sweating and you're like suffering, but you're like eating more and more and more and you cannot yeah. have enough. And I think that's that's my relationship with with, with horror, man. It's, it's kind of like, I know it's not maybe great for me, like spicy food or, 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 or pain, like in that sense of the word. Well, in a way, though, that's also not destructive. I mean, spicy food, could, no. <laughs> it could cause damage to you. But, oh, yeah. You know, uh, tattoos, only if they're not doing it correctly, of course. So it's really like, it's just pain. And uh, yeah. pain is a good thing. You know, we do build up tolerances. We do understand how to deal with other pains as we go along because of it. So I do feel that, you know, there's been the research going on throughout the pandemic that horror fans... Uh, have been especially the ones who still seek out getting scared not the ones who just sit around and, and watch like you know friday the 13th over and over again uh really <laughs> people who like really want to get scared uh, i mean there's nothing wrong with that either there's nothing wrong with it but i'm saying for this particular study they tended to cope really well with the situation during the pandemic just because we're yeah. like i have actively felt worse emotions in yeah sense, that's true you know uh, and it's not and I guess because we kind of like seek out this turmoil or at least we expose ourselves to emotions that we would normally run away from. We can do it in the cinema, but maybe not in a one on one conversation with the people that usually cause the problems with us. Yeah. Uh, and but it does help us if we do have that confrontation that we're like, well, I'm not too afraid of it. So let's do this. Yeah. And it's funny because that kind of links to to the theme of the movie that, that we're talking about today. Yeah. Oh, what movie are we going to talk about then? I think it's a great segue. Oh, we're talking about the Babadook. Babadook, Duke, Duke. Babadook. Okay. Oh, man, that movie blew my freaking mind. <laughs> uh, for those who are not familiar with it, I uh, 
okay, everybody who follows me on Twitter knows that I'm a very, very busy person. Uh, and like just yesterday I had a 14 hour shift at work. So I do apologize. I have a very short synopsis for you today. I got the one from IMDb because like I did with the insidious one, I felt that it actually succinctly said everything you need to know if you haven't seen the movie. And it says a single mother and her child fall into a deep well of paranoia when an eerie children's book titled Mr. Babadook manifests in their home. There's a lot more to it, but I do think this is one of those movies that if I had given you a more detailed description would have actually taken away from some of the things that you could experience firsthand. Uh, and time is a thing. So uh, for those who enjoy my synopses, I do apologize, but for those who are like, Oh, this is refreshing. You didn't spoil anything. Uh, go watch it and then come back. Uh, but yeah, because we, we are going to spoil it now. <laughs> starting now. now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so when I approached you to be on the show, Yes. You were pretty quick with the Babadook. So what what is it about the Babadook that triggered in your brain when I said beauty and horror? Because I find that movie like just beautiful, man, in every single aspect, in both technical aspect and storytelling aspect. I think that um, what I was what I was telling you earlier that my favorite kind of horror is the one that evokes emotions out of you and mm-hmm. not just being scared that I, I find a movie like to be extremely powerful when the horror element only adds, it's only a layer on, in, in, in the whole that is the movie. Because this, this movie is not, it's not a monster flick. It's, it's not a haunting movie. Yes, there is a monster that is haunting these characters, but it's a movie about grief. And, and about the stages of grief and about what happens if you don't deal with that grief in a healthy way. And and the Babadook is kind of like an embodiment of 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 this of this whole freaking thing. And I mean, talking about mismarketed movies, yeah, it's it's marketed as a creature feature when when it's really not. It's just like a very very personal character study uh, about a woman in grief. Yep. Plus, it's visually beautiful. Oh yes, yes. Uh, and it's also in like in the cultural sphere as well. Like not only is it mismarketed, but it's kind of like misrepresented by a lot of fans because it does have a very iconic looking character in the form of yeah. Mr. Duke. And which comes from a lot of different psychological and like parapsychological uh, accounts. You know, you have the account of the hat man in urban yeah. legends. And so they took that concept of, you know, things that come from sleep paralysis, these sort of shadowy figures and, applied it to the specific situation but yeah people will see him as a very iconic character like a freddy krueger or something i'm like it looks cool and by all means you know do your cosplay and dress up as the babadook but when i see people saying like oh so is the babadook going to be like the next big horror icon i kind of feel like did you watch and pay attention to the point of the, the film yeah, itself. Yeah, it's really not about the Babadook. You should focus on the the story of the movie a little more then because like as cool as the babadook is uh, I would hate to see about 10 sequels for this story that don't understand what the original did. Yeah, which Jennifer Kent already said that, hell's no. <laughs> hell's no. We're done. No, no, no. It's like, the, yeah, that's that's it. And then he mm-hmm. moved on to, to other things. Like his latest film, um, oh, crap. I'm blanking. But it, it's beautiful, man. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it's, it. It's disturbing AF. Well, you know, she's good at that. Nightingale. 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 Watch it. Okay. Yeah. 
Anyway, yeah. um, the Babadook, the, the the creature design is is magnificent. It's it's perfect for a cosplay, and I think it's like a gay icon now. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. I forgot where that started, but somebody mentioned uh, Babadook in relation to LGBT identities, and the whole community were like, "I could see that." And then, because like, yeah. I guess, well, in a way, I guess uh, you could see it uh, with um, dysphoria could be a, a very good representation through the box. I guess so, yeah. You know? And uh, Jennifer Kent went on record and said, like, she loves that the the, the community has adopted the Babadook yeah. as some sort of, like, mascot or representation of them. And, and that's pretty cool. Like, mm-hmm. I like how these things morph away, but we're talking <laughs> yeah. about... Right now, we're talking about this is specifically the, the movie and mm-hmm. the beauty of it. The beauty yeah. of horror. And there's a lot of that in this film. So I, I am one of those people that did not appreciate this movie when it first came out. But the more I've gotten to know people who really, really resonated with it, and the more I've uh, you know, kind of looked back on my life at the time that I saw it and stuff like that, I kind of understand a bit more why it didn't really click with me. And mm-hmm. it's because, A, I was still in a pretty dark depression at the moment that I saw the film. Ooh, yeah, and okay. I have severe ADHD, so just the child in general. Like, I was just getting anxiety of thinking, like, I don't know what I would do any differently <laughs> with this kid. Uh, like, I would scream at a kid who was doing that too. So I was just like, I don't know, is she doing anything wrong? <laughs> That's kind of how I felt at the time. Uh, it, I, I could not distance myself enough to really appreciate how well crafted the story was because this movie really affects me, and it still does. I was watching it just before we started. And I started to get cranky as I was setting everything up. I was getting stressed out. And the movie just puts me in her mental state. Perfect. Yeah. No, but that, that's that's the – like, kudos to Jennifer Kent for, mm-hmm. for like that's, – that's directing, man. That movie yeah. is a master class on directing actor because specifically the kid. Yeah. Like, you want to kill the kid. You want to punch that kid. But you also kind of get the kid. Like I was that kid, but you, you, yeah. There's empathy to both <laughs> characters, man. Yeah, and 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 you hate both characters, and you're yeah, like, I like that. It, and and that's beautiful. And I actually have to rewatch it. I haven't seen it in in a long, long time. I, I have the DVD in in the attic, mm-hmm. but I want to rewatch it now. Now that I'm a father, and and <laughs> and, and see how how it it, it, it switches, man. Because I think there's going to be a lot of triggers there. I can imagine. So I'm. So let's start, I suppose, then with, I, I think, maybe the easiest thing we can start with, the visuals yeah. of the film. Since when we think aesthetics, usually it's the first thing that people's brains kind of go to. And you said that on all layers, this movie really like screams beauty to you. Where then in the visual aesthetics does that seem to kind of tap you? Oh, it, that, that's very easy. I, and I remember it was one of the first things that I noticed when I was watching it is when uh when the mom and the kid are inside of the house uh-huh. the cinematography the colors it's like 100 percent fantasy uh-huh. they're they're living kind of like in a fantasy world almost uh pants labyrinth guillermo el toro I was thinking that. Uh, yeah. colors and, and 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 framing and when they're outside it's it's uh the the the, the cinematography is dare i say boring uh-huh. it's just like uh plainly lit and that's pretty much it. So this contrasts between the settings 
that when they're in the real world, everything is kind of like gray, everything is grim because that's the way the mom feels. Yeah. And everything is bleh and bland. And then when they go inside of the house, which is dark and kind of gothic without being like <laughs> really gothic, but it, it emanates this gothicness out of it. It could be like completely bright outside, but inside it's like super dark and gray and this like blue color palette that I just like, I'm in love with kind of also very, very symbolizes her state, which is very blue, very, very washed out, very like sinking into darkness. And I thought that that was like gorgeous. And plus we already said that the, that the design of the Babadook itself Mm -hmm. is really on point. Yeah, I actually love the what I love the most about the visuals, especially in that house, is because of the fantastical nature of the Babadook itself, that you could see that the Babadook had already infiltrated that house even before they found the book. Because yeah. the color palette is the Babadook's like makeup colors and the colors of the 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 cloak and the hat and everything. But also like the face is it's not just a black and white character. It has like shades of gray, bits of blue yeah. here and there for contrast. And it was amazing to me to sit there like, did Tim Burton put this together? Like, what is this color on this wall? It's like straight out of the the house in Beetlejuice when they when the Dietzes do the interior. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I and I like that. I like that she was not scared to to go. Sorry, a little bit far fetched in the. Mm-hmm. in the fantasy elements or in the fantasy palettes in the interior of the house because I think that also uh, helped uh, the, the the case of this kid and like uh, that uh, that he thinks that there's a monster in the house that the mm-hmm. That they have to do this ritual every single night before the, oh, the yeah. kid goes to bed. Oh my god! Like I still have the memory so fresh in my head, and I haven't seen it in like <laughs> six years. I don't know. I think that like it's a perfect setting for this kind of movie. Even the kitchen. The kitchen looks so surreal. Yeah, it does. They have this little alcove too, where you. Uh, what I love about that part as well. It's actually funny. This links to the previous episode that just released, where I talked about The Shining, and we talked a lot about architecture oh. and. In this case, how the architecture here shows like you have the old and the new. So you have a relatively yeah. renovated house, but the kitchen is where you can see where the old house used to be. So you have that old oven and stove area, which is just bricked up and painted now. So it's this little alcove of a, of a little counter. And it's the only white part that's just clean white in the entire part of the house. Whereas yeah. all the new shit that they put in the house that's where all of her depression is attached to it. And it's all blue and it's grimy and it's dark. Yeah. Yeah. And you see a lot of uh, empty photo frames, if I recall correctly, yeah. that uh, you, you see a lot of uh, like places where there's clearly something missing. So mm-hmm. these are like photos that she just took off and never bothered to put something on, on to replace it. And yeah. like to think of these details is what I think makes it beautiful as well. It's so well thought out and there's so much heart and so much honesty put into this story that the environment is also telling you the story. The cinematography is also telling you the story. Exactly. So I also, I I don't know how, I mean, without getting too personal people's issues here and there, but I, I, I'm willing to open free, openly discuss my own uh, experiences as someone who has had uh, bouts of depression and, different you know breakdowns and stuff here and there i can say that when they show that kind of washed out mundane look to the real world 
I like how they're using natural lighting, but it's kind of not keyed in very well. So it's just kind of like really harsh on the eyes every now and then. And that's kind of how the world really feels when you leave that space. You know, you leave your own kind of comfort zone. Yeah. The world just kind of attacks you with the sun and everybody else is just really comfortable in that space. And you're like, what a boring, terrible, same, samey, shitty kind of life everybody has. And so there's part of you that sticks inside your own head and your depression and you feel very comfortable there because it's yours. It's your life. But there's also a part of you that sees just what sort of hell you've kind of built for yourself and yeah. you don't know whether you want to escape it because the world around you is just not appealing, basically. And, and, and that's another layer on, the, on this contrast. Yeah, that's why the, the, the exterior cinematography is... is in in a way lame in contrast mm. with the with the with the house the house is uh, more like carefully lit carefully framed uh and it is dark like it's a representation of her mind because it's very dark and she doesn't want to go out like you said because we're it's home yeah it's what she knows this is her domain uh so and and, and that's kind of like a vicious cycle that one enters also, I, I also dealt with uh, with some depression like the first couple of years that I that I moved here to the Netherlands, mm. and it really does feel like that. Yeah, the, and her perspective is shown very clearly, not just through camera work or colors and stuff, but it, it's shown very clearly in all that, and through all of the different characters that are through the film. I like that just everyone is a burden. <laughs> everyone. Yeah. Uh, from the moment go, nobody that she works with seems really pleasant. Her sister's really unpleasant. Ugh, yeah, I and don't, yeah. It's hard to tell in some instances when it's a situation where she's just taking it that way or when it's true. I think in the case of the sister, she's just like a very bad family member. But And also, it, 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 it's probably not the first time that the child is like... F- being inappropriate around his mm-hmm. little cousin or something. But yeah, I think you are meant to say like, oh, geez, like take it down a notch, sister. Well, and I also feel just like it's, it's one thing to say, well, I just don't like being around your kid. Your kid's a problem. And it's another thing to address, hey, I think that your son might have some behavioral issues that need to be sorted by a professional. Do you need any help? I know it's really tough. But that's a very 2021 uh, way of thinking things. No, nah, man, I was raised in the 90s. My mom had plenty of friends who were like, can I take your kid off your shoulders? Because your kid's a nightmare and I'll deal with them. I'm cool. And I just felt like it's kind of like, it's your sister. I get that she has her own problems, but like she always acted like everything was a burden to her. And I love how later uh, Amelia just freaks out on everybody around the birthday party. Oh, I'm so sorry that you didn't get to work out this morning. The world must have ended when, you know, she's sitting there with this nightmare child. <laughs> right. Yeah. I remember she's, she's supposed to be this kind of like uptight, kind of like the sister in Fleabag. Yeah. She's, that's the whole thing. The sister's priorities are just constantly about you should be normal. You're not listening to me. Uh, my kid, this, my kid, that blah, 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 blah. And she's sitting there like, yeah, okay. I don't have a husband anymore. I'm a single mom. I have like four jobs and my kid needs therapy, but thank you. <laughs> and, I, and, and she basically is blaming her kid for the death yeah. of her husband. Yeah, as well. And it doesn't help that her sister's basically telling her, 
your kid sucks. So yeah, your kid is <laughs> to blame. Because everybody knows that, man. Like, yeah. It's so, so clear that his, that her kid sucks. And that it is, it's kind of her doing also. Yes, since she's never actually gone through the grief of accepting the fact that her, you know, biggest love in life was lost, which for, for, for those who are still sticking with us and haven't seen it, but you're curious, uh, you know, the film opens with a car wreck and it's a dream sequence. And so we learn very early on that her husband died driving her to the hospital to give birth and she barely survives. The kid barely survives, but now they have to live with the guilt that because the kid had to be born, her husband's dead. And yeah. that plays throughout the entire film. It's it's I think it's the main motive uh, of the entire movie. Yeah. Like uh how she blames her kid and, uh, for for this, which is why he has never given the kid a proper birthday party uh, because she just like relates it directly to the death of her of, of her husband. And I think that is one of the this is what sets everything in motion like uh, in bringing the book in or like when the kid finds the book the, the pop-up book mr ba- mr babadook and they start reading it it is kind of like what's happening to them mm-hmm. and what well, how does it start if it's in a word or is in a look you cannot escape the babadook something like that yeah yeah and oh man oh, i don't know I, I really want that pop-up book too i wish i had made that speaking of visual speaking of visuals the best prop in the world man yes i also love how later you see how possessed the book is so all the pop-ups start moving on their own and yeah kind of turning into this kind of weird like animatronic kind of storytelling thing with her killing herself and killing the son and everything. Whereas, you know, that in reality, she's just kind of gone into like a trance and is starting to like manipulate the, uh, the pop-up a bit. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it also has some very like jumpy moments, man. Mm-hmm. I remember, um, she's, uh, I don't know if this, if this is from this movie, <laughs> but she's watching TV and she's watching this, uh, like, um, news report that yeah. uh, a, a woman got arrested and mm-hmm. then she's looking at the TV and then she's like, what the fuck? And she comes closer to the TV, to the TV and in the window in the house, in the TV, she, it's her, the, yeah. the, the main character looking back straight at her. I remember that freaked me out, man. I was like, what the fuck? And right after that, she turns around and she sees her son just in a bloody mess on the right. chair. Yes. And he just, She's just like, what the fuck? You go to her face. She's like, oh, my God. And then you hear mom. And it cuts to the kid. She just cuts back to her. And then they finally pan out. And she's been holding a knife the whole time. Yeah. Like, ugh, ugh. That's, that's when her psyche's starting to crack a bit. And all the pressure from her kids having some problems at school. He's hurt his cousin. She can't deal with raising him all the time. But at the same time, she has to live a normal life and just can't seem to do it. It it's starting to really tear her down. And then we see that in the form of all these little visions and stuff. And of course the, the insinuation is that the Babadook is giving her these visions since uh, it seems that if you read the book, it slowly starts to creep into your house. But in a way, I think that like, if we analyze it a little bit is, is how when you're in, in, in a position like that, when you're, you're in such a dark place mentally that you really don't see a way out. 
that, that that's where her, her subconscious starts playing with these images of of uh, the TV news report of uh, a woman killing her child, mm-hmm. the images of her of her child being dead, and then finding herself with a knife. That's yep. of course in the movie this is all because of the ba- this is the Babadook's doing, but this is like a mm-hmm. huge metaphor or of not dealing with your mental issues, like. Yep specifically when it when they come to when it comes to grief and we're so directly connected to to what is what what is your current burden in life and there's a yeah there's a strange morbidity to everything when you get so stuck down that hole as you said you don't see a way out but then the ways out that you see just become very very dark and it's one thing like you know there's ideation so there's this the thought of what if i were dead Mm-hmm. What if what if they were dead? My problem would be gone. Uh, what if I was alone? Yada, yada, yada. But then the longer you go without coping and without really just addressing the emotion and trying to work through the emotion, your ideations start to become more and more well-formed. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So you can suddenly imagine that person dead and try to like desensitize yourself to the thought of it which is how a lot of people do get pushed to really like snap moments of aggression and violence because they have been pushed to a point by themselves usually, but by others as well to be able to recognize and see the situation in the future and be okay with it basically because the idea of it has formed into a reality for them. And I liked that image too, because like I, I've been there with people and with myself. Like you get so dark, you're just kind of like, okay, well, l- let's genuinely imagine what it would be like if this person was dead. How would I see that? How would I envision that? And you know, anybody who's kind of not too far gone, you go, whoa! If you get yeah. yourself thinking like that, and then you think, okay, I need to talk to somebody. I need to get some help. I need to figure out how to stop. Yeah, like I need to deal with this problem. Yeah. yeah. And she does in her way. That that is a wake up call. Yeah, no, but that's that's the thing. When when uh, after ignoring her kid for probably years, basically. Yeah. When when she finally sees that the that the Babadook is real, uh-huh. uh, she starts to to maybe okay okay something's wrong, and she starts to try and deal with these things, which and and I think that's when the Babadook says like. Oh fuck no! And 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 possesses her fully. Yeah, like just before, just when she's about to. Oh, maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Boom! Like someone turns off the light. It's so like hell's no. You're staying here in the dark, and you're going even deeper. And and this is represented in in the Babadook possessing the mother. And we have this really really great sequence of uh the kid using all the all the anti monster monster <laughs> weapons that he crafted along the movie that you you're less yep. that you just think like oh my god this kid's gonna kill someone one day and, and and he ends up defending himself from his mother from the monster and mm-hmm. in the process saving his mother yeah so i i don't know like the the the, the arc of the kid the, the, the story arc of the kid of, of of he's fully aware that his mother doesn't love him yeah that's really sad because yeah. I think he says that in the in the movie like I know that you don't love me and that's okay mm-hmm. but I'm still gonna protect you yeah around the end he says that when she's in this uh, full possession mode yeah like I love you and I'm gonna protect you yeah you know and and I think that's that's when like the the mom is like oh fuck okay 
So like I am loved regardless. Exactly. I, I love that the kid gets a redemption arc like that. Again, I was one of those shitty people when the movie came out that I was like, nah, fuck this kid. No, still. I <laughs> I was all sad that he didn't die, all that kind of crap, because I was just so offended by what happened to me. But I was actually talking to uh, my fiance just before this about a situation we had yesterday at our escape room. I can't go into too many details because it's such a secrecy kind of uh, industry. But there is a moment in our game that we we completely take control away from you. You just got to do something. And it, it could be fun if you just let it happen. It could also be terrifying, but you still got to do it. And we obviously have a way around it. If people really are like, I can't do this. I just cannot do this. Then we will continue without it. You know, we'll find a way around it. But it it, it has a game mechanic to it. So it's kind of like if you don't do it, you've made it really hard on us. And we have to get creative on how to get around it because it does have circum like it has consequences later in the game. And we had a team that were these like really entitled just like they didn't want to sign our waiver because uh, they didn't like how much text was on it and they didn't feel like reading anything and filling it out. Oh my uh, God. You know what? Fuck off. Yeah, exactly. So they were already giving us a hard time. We had one who claimed that she had a, a card to not wear a mask, even though we're like, yeah, but there's no ventilation in here. And you kind of like our house, our rules, you kind of need to wear a mask to keep everybody safe, not throwing a fit, but just that whole like, kind of like you know people who are in their late 30s who act like they're 13 Uh, yeah man yeah so they were doing that stuff and they were enjoying the game but they were begrudgingly enjoying it we were watching and we could tell they were getting more and more excited the more intense it got and by the time they were done like unfortunately they did not win but when we were done doing my customer service thing i'm just trying to like find a funny way to kind of bring up like when did it kind of go wrong because they did play pretty well up until a point and there's always these emotional points in the game where we're like and then that just kind of make you fall apart you know we let's yeah. just have a laugh at ourselves let's recognize the fact that you know you you met your emotional match today and it kind of screwed with your you know logical and intellectual part of your oh, brain oh man i'm so intrigued <laughs> i really need to come to this escape you got room. to i've been telling you you got to do it but these people didn't have a sense of humor they didn't really they're the types who I could tell that their real genuine fear is not having control. This is why they're entitled. This is why they act like those teenagers are like, oh, you didn't do things the way I want them. So when this moment comes, that the very insinuation that they would have gone to a point when it's like, you don't get to do much here. We're just kind of like, you just got to go along with it. The guy, one of the guys kept like freaking out at the end of it. And not like f- until I mentioned it. It's like, well, when, when this moment kind of got triggered – uh, y'all seem to fall apart after that. That's when they just like, even afterwards, even though nobody did it, they were kind of acting like somebody did it and were just freaked out, just really drained of all energy of like, whoa, it was just too intense. And he just kept going, yeah, because I don't like that. And I said, well, it's good that you didn't have to do it. Said, yeah, but I don't like that. Oh, my apologies, sir. I'm so sorry that my game has its own like setup to it and you didn't yeah. have to do it. I was like, I really went out of my way to make sure that you were comfortable Ugh. and safe. And, and that's fine. I, I, I was just like, well, you know, I just kept continuing saying like, and I'm very happy that you didn't have to go through that. Cause I can imagine that would have been a lot for you, but he did not want to deal with it. Why I bring it up is because it reminded me of my initial reactions to the Babadook. I initially, okay. I blamed the film for making me feel the way it made me feel. 
And then the more I've spoken to people where they got a lot out of it, I was just like, what, what are you on? What the hell movie did you watch? How could you even stomach this, this horrible, evil, aggressive film? And then I decided to put my own sort of pride aside and checked it out again. Still didn't love it the second time I saw it because it still made me feel that way. And I watched it again now. It still makes me feel that way, but I can appreciate it a lot more because I can push through those moments and really appreciate what you were talking about. It is masterclass filmmaking to continuously cause an emotional response just by portraying it to the height of your technical abilities, your storytelling abilities, the use of iconography, symbology, colorism, all of the stuff. It does elicit a response. And I am primed to generate that response. So it's a very triggering film for me, but that's on me. I just shouldn't watch it very often. I just need to leave that movie alone, you know? No, no, no. And also, it's not an easy watch, man. It's not no. an easy watch. I've seen this movie, yeah, pretty much like around 10 times because wow, like when it came out, I became obsessed with it. Like So obsessed wow. that a friend of mine like gave me the DVD for my birthday. And, mm-hmm. and I did watch it a lot. I watched all the interviews, all the behind the scenes footage. Like I was obsessed with this movie because it was one of the first horror movies that really made me feel something other than scared. Right. But that I found horrific, Mm. you know, different kind of horror. Yeah. Different kind of horror. And then, and, and then I was like, Oh my God, what, how is this movie making me feel like despite of the horror and the fact that it's a horror film made it even better. Yeah. I get that. And, and, and I'm like, wow, horror movies can be like introspective and, and real. And in, 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 in the way they, the, the characters treat each other. I don't know. This is the first movie that, that really, really, really appealed to my sense of empathy towards a character. Mm-hmm. And I saw the character as a human being for what they were going through. And that's basically what blew my mind when I saw that. And I mean, I haven't, I really need to watch that movie again now that I'm a father, because I think that my perspective on it would be completely different. It would be like a, watching it for the first time again. I think it, it would be an interesting sort of task to do like, with every kind of milestone in your son's development to watch it again. So like watch it now while he's a baby, then watch it again when he's like (laughs) seven, then watch it again when he's a teenager and just see how you respond to this mother son dynamic in this film. Yeah. Cause also, I mean the performance of the kid, like this kid, the fact that I could hate that kid so much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> such good acting he was brilliant man so good he was brilliant especially this scene in the car yeah when he's just like screaming his his lungs out and and that's like the breaking point for the mother when she says like why can't you be normal i was i was wondering the same thing myself like well i was watching <laughs> and then i and i thought like wow this kid is a beast mm-hmm. he's a beast of an actor and the thing about kid actors is that they don't fake the feelings that they're acting. No. It's, it's so, so it's emotionally way more draining for a kid to, to, to act than it is for a grown-up. Because, I mean, the mother is also a hell of a performance. 
hell of like Oscar worthy performance. But but you you gotta be completely surprised with 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 the the commitment to the kid and the way that probably Jennifer Kent approached it with him. I was talking to uh, a few years ago to Isa Lopez, the director of uh, Tigers oh. Are Not Afraid. Wow. We were here in Amsterdam actually having a beer and. And if you saw Tigers Are Not Afraid, it, like the whole cast, like the main cast is five kids. Yeah. And she's the one who told me, like, it's really delicate how you work a horror movie with kids because they feel the movie. They don't act it. Mm-hmm. So you have to be really, really careful on with, with their mental health. Right. And uh, and she told me, like, one of the kids, like, it, it, it was hard for him. Like uh, during the the progression of the film, because he he the, his performance is like is is same level as this kid from the Babadook, but he she told me like days later, weeks later, he was still dealing with these emotions that he had to experience. So, like I cannot imagine such a performance how how it can affect a kid, and it's something that I had not really wondered until now that I have a kid of my own. Right. Knowing how your child is developing and responding to very simple input. And then it's like, okay, now I want you to truly believe that there's this monster in the car and it's taking over the one person that takes care of you. Yeah. And protect her now. Go. Like, yeah. How do you, what a role. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, a, I mean, I got to take my hat off for Jennifer Kent and that's mm-hmm. her first feature, man. Yeah, that's the most impressive part for me as well. You you would think that this was maybe a third or fourth run for somebody who has kind of like honed their craft a bit and still learning. Yeah, and out the gate, she knew what she was doing. Oh, a hundred percent, man. And I mean, one of my unpopular opinions is like, show me a Greta Gerwig, and I'll and I'll raise you a Jennifer Kent. (laughs) Like the the thing is, like the the level of exposure is completely different. It is. It is. But there's also a, like a visceral kind of part to Kent's perspective that I think is where her talent really lies. That she's not afraid to go like, but let's be honest, this is how emotion really is. Yeah. And it's ugly and it's not fun. O- on that, I want to come to that quote that I gave, actually. So right. you seem to be really taken by it. It's it's a quote, not from antiquity, but pretty old, uh, you know, from the, the 1700s, 1800s. Uh, it's from a very famous philosopher by the name of Arthur Schopenhauer, our, our, oh. our big, big daddy pessimism. Um, <laughs> and this is from the world as will and representation. So some of the words that he has in there actually are very loaded terminology that I'm not going to go into uh, too heavily, but I will try my best to explain what he's trying to say in that in his way. Okay. What he is getting at. So this is in this book, he talks about just pretty much all cognition and emotional development, the ways we respond to things, the ways that we, we experience life. It's all about it. It's very experiential, but you know, he's a transcendental philosopher, existentialist, a lot of different things. This is a section where he's talking about beauty and why we claim things are beautiful what what is beauty from his perspective so one thing to note about schopenhauer for anybody who might not be familiar with his work uh, like i said he's granddaddy pessimism because his whole perspective on life is everything is a response to suffering that the basis of life is just suffering you're thrust into the world without any say so 
Mm -hmm. You just are. You come out screaming. Your eyes hurt. You don't know what anything is. You have to learn everything. You have to experience pain to understand pain. We can't feel joy unless we have sadness. So he, he really flips the coin, so to speak, you know, whereas a lot of people like an optimist would say, well, Wes, I understand that uh, there is darkness and sadness in the world, but it's mainly light and joy. He'd be like, no, because we need to be taught how to feel joy. It's kind of how his perspective is. You know? Because the light is only so bright because the darkness yeah. is so dark. And we have to learn how to cope with the darkness. So yeah. uh, especially in his time, the darkness was very dangerous still too. Not as much as, you know, before his time, but still it's like, you still had people creeping around in the shadows and uh, you still had animals that were coming into the cities and stuff. He had to like fight <laughs> against every now and then. So uh, the shadows were a real deal there. But also emotionally and psychologically speaking, it, it's just part of, you know, Jungian psychology also tends to look at that too, about how we develop through our transgressions and through the ways that are negative emotions. So I think Schopenhauer is just a very depressed man and just realized, hey, uh, maybe we could learn a thing or two from this perspective as well. And here he's talking about beauty. As you can imagine, beauty is a way for us to see. It basically, it's the feeling of joy that we get when we witness something that is taking away our suffering. So beautiful things overwhelm us. So in a way it is a form of suffering. It is a very mm -hmm. you know, like intense experience, but it still gives us joy because it is a very welcome reprieve from everything else in our baseline and our reality. So the specific quote is just talking about how everything has a dynamic of beauty in his eyes. It doesn't. So a lot of other philosophers at the time, like Immanuel Kant and Edmund Burke, they really were like, beautiful objects are beautiful because they're beautiful. Like there are specific things that are beautiful things that are round. A beautiful woman has very soft, smooth, round skin. Statues are like alabaster smooth. They have to be proportionately put together yeah, yeah, yeah. nicely. Certain <laughs> colors appeal to the eye. The pastels are really nice. The flowers and look how shaped they are and really smooth and whatever. But jagged structures, mountains, these sorts of things, oh, they're more sublime. They're kind of intimidate us. So we're not going to say they're beautiful, blah, blah, blah. Whereas Schopenhauer's like, ah, it's nonsense. A mountain's beautiful. A shark mm -hmm. is beautiful. Yeah. He's like, uh, a knife is beautiful. And is the reason why these things are is because, in his opinion, the real beauty comes from the fact that we are creating um, some sort of connotation with things. And so, in his, so when he mentions idea, that word idea has a capital in the text. For him, an idea is a very specific formulation, and an idea in this way is more uh, a conceptualization, a thought, a feeling, an, an evocation. Yeah. And so he finds it beautiful that all things visually audibly whatever they evoke they are representations of ideas that we have in our mind because reality is what we shape of it we can walk on a cliffside and it be a cliffside but it's different from a dog who's experiencing the cliffside and us experiencing a cliffside we may see oh the precarious nature of i might fall off of it but then we have fear. We can see the, the rigid rocks below and know that it's painful, but it also is an accumulation of time and water that's destroying things. So 
he also mentions, he goes on, I didn't go into the quote there, but he talks about, you know, things like light, gravity, other sorts of concepts that we have are evoked in aesthetics. So, yeah. you know, when you see a mountain, you can see the weight and height and thinness of air and, and the, the how painful it must be to be on that thing. I thought this was a really good fit for this film because of the way Kent has structured the film. How the Babadook alone is one of those. It is the idea made manifest. Mm -hmm. And the whole film is this representation of something, which most films are. But I just feel like this particular one, at least based on my own experience of the film and how it really deeply affects me, I felt really aligns itself with, I think Schopenhauer would weep watching this movie. Yeah. Just like he would be like, you got it. You understood it. This is pure representation of our, our will as human beings in visuals and in sound. And he's, I think he would have been just completely flabbergasted that somebody could do this. I, I, I completely agree, man. Like the, the, the thing about this movie, the, it kind of taught me that as a person who has never experienced real grief, like I've never experienced a death in my family. Like the only death that I've experienced is my dogs with, which freaking broke my heart. It, it is very rough, but I've never experienced like grief from a family member. And I, I thought that um, uh, this movie kind of taught me that grief c can be beautiful, can be cathartic. And, and if dealt with, yeah, you know, and, and it, it is a process that you have to, to go through um to avoid falling into the darkness and that concept as weird as it sounds i find beautiful because i find it human as fuck and mm -hmm. down like in the in like in the down like at the end that's what this human that's what this movie is about it's about being human and about our personal demons in a embodied in a really cool monster but <laughs> I don't know. Like th th this is one of the movies that has uh, have touched me the deepest, and the movie I think that taught me that horror can be smart and but in in the way you approach the horror, or in the way that you 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 bring the horror the horror element of a story because this movie is not depending on the horror element to scare you. Without being, so much, no. no, without the monster, without it, you're still going to be like terrified at the situation, at having a kid like this, at having a mother like this, at, at, at losing your loved one on the way to a hospital to, to have your kid. Like it, it makes you think about your own life. And I, I found that gorgeous. And, and it's not a, it's not a tool that it's used often in, in, in horror. You know, and, and but but more and more because I think that Hereditary, The Witch, mm -hmm. Midsummer, yeah, Midsummer, like again, A twenty four, they're they're appealing more to the humanity within horror than mm -hmm. than the actual uh, aesthetics and the jump scares, and which they can live, but they can coexist and they can create something far more beautiful than any Lifetime movie, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's not on the surface is why. I and mean, if you take like, yeah, I like that comparison because, you know, your general dramas of, of, you know, 
emotional core kind of films, they, they kind of just surface level show you people be sad and give you a, a story of them kind of finding redemption or something through it. And if that appeals to you, this is not a, a knock on anybody who really gets something out of those things, but there is something to be said about taking a genre that is usually geared towards one specific goal and then them deciding, what if I achieve this goal through showing you the harsh realities of the very thing that you're kind of being sheltered away from in these other films, you know, uh, there are definitely dramas out there that will go as far as this, but the majority of them, especially your, your more lifetime style movies are there for you to have an easy form of entertainment while still having a little bit of recognition and empathy with them. And the Babadook was not made for that. It was made to really confront you. Yeah. With, emotions you probably forgot you had and and i think that the best art is confrontational yeah and um and like because a quick perspective as a filmmaker is dealing with pitching and pitching and dealing with with producers and stuff mm-hmm. and sometimes i'm pitching uh, my films which uh, they always have a surreal element either sci-fi or horror mm-hmm. but I, I try to to talk about a specific subject through a sci-fi lens, through a horror lens, you know, through a surreal lens. And I always, um, the the first thing is like, before I'm even pitching the idea and pitching the concept and the, 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 the grief from the Babadook, as if I was pitching the Babadook, they said like, Oh yeah, we don't, we don't do, we do, we do uh, art house films and dramas. Uh And I was like, are you, are you kidding me? What's more like artsy (laughs) quote unquote than, than, than horror men. and I always tell them, like, watch the Babadook. Like, uh-huh. that is art. And, and I mean, cons- I would consider definitely it's an art house movie, whatever the oh, yeah. fuck that means. Because <laughs> I don't know what art house movie means, really. Um, it's, um, like, horror and sci-fi are, are looked at through a very cheap lens sometimes. Uh-huh. For people, I know no, no scary movies, and I know sci-fi, and uh, Star Wars, and... Star Wars is beautiful, but it, it's not—it's not all that there is to the sci-fi genre. There, there can be so many things that are sci-fi or that are horror, that are surreal, that can make you think, can make you feel something other than afraid. I would also argue that even those movies that we would often put that label on might have more going on in them and had more intentionally then maybe audiences and studios kind of picked up and, and put out there. Look at the Babadook. We are already talking about how there is a, you know, um, portion of people that all they do is just go like, well, the Babadook's cool. It's cool. It's a scary monster. Let's make a scary monster movie out of it. And not really picking up on all these subtleties. Whereas where I'm like, well, it's beating you on the head of it, uh, uh, beating you on the head with it. And you're still not really grasping what's there. And that could be just from either not being able to relate or being too like uncomfortable to really open yourself up to, to that experience. Yeah. But I've noticed there are a lot of horror movies uh, from the past that even like some slashers and stuff really have at least some subtext going on that those things are being touched upon. And it shows how genre film to put it in a more wide umbrella genre film always has a way of addressing real world issues 
oh, beyond trust, yeah. it's scary, you know? So it, it, I wouldn't say it's a totally a new phenomenon for horror to go in this direction. There are plenty of older movies that did, but I just don't think that they were perceived as such until way later. Or, you know, you have readings of films. And nowadays you have a lot of filmmakers who are like, why don't I just make the movie that you read? And so they make it like, <laughs> that's the blatant part of it now is this part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, lately, I think I would say like a really good example of of a great movie that can be one thing in your head, but then you watch it and it's like so many other things is The Empty Man. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, dude, I'm not going to say anything about no. it then because you have to watch it. Okay. It, it just has I will the see it best soon. cold open, one of the best cold openings I've seen in a movie in recent years. Okay. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. <laughs> I've seen a couple images here and there. I'm like, well, I like the tone that I'm seeing here. So very curious to this film. Uh, and yeah, there are a lot of movies that came out recently that are, that are doing this. And I love this trend. And uh, I have to say, especially with people such as yourself who have such a passion for the Babadook, who got it the first time, who, who fortunately <laughs> were able to put your guard up a little more than I was. Uh, I've developed more of an appreciation for it. So I think that if anybody out there who's like me, who had that initial response after this conversation, please try to pick up the Babadook again. Oh, please do pay attention to those little details. I think you and just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. Let yourself be scared. Let yourself be vulnerable. And uh, with any movie, with any movie, Uh I agree for sure. Well, then I think that, is a good way to wrap up. I think so too. This was so fun, man. Well, it was really lovely talking to you, and especially about uh, something that you're passionate about. Um, yeah. Then I'm going to do my quick round off. Uh, so this podcast is a part of the Anatomy of Scream Pod Squad. Be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Scream Podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including 28 Days Later, hosted by Sophie and Hannah Day, The Road to Nowhere, hosted by RC Hara, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror or horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic, and you can check out my website, which is shockaholic.org. So, dear listeners, what are your thoughts on the Baba Duke? I'd love to hear your thoughts either on Twitter at beautyhorrorpod via email, which is at beautyofhorrorpod at gmail.com, or in our newly formed community space on Discord. Check out the Twitter account for the link there. If you want even more content, you can become a subscriber on my coffee page. There are multiple tiers to choose from depending on your interests. And the awesome thing is that all tiers get access to a new monthly podcast entitled The Good, The Agreeable, and The Beautiful. I did episode zero just recently, about two weeks ago. So please check out that episode where I review Hellraiser from the perspective of Kant's judgments of taste. I had a lot of uh, fun doing that. I explained a little bit more about how it all works. So if you're more interested in getting that more regularly, you can get that through coffee. Uh, You can get that at coffee.com slash beautyhorrorpod for full details on everything else. I want to thank you again, Kiko, for sitting down and talking about this film with me. Uh, So where can everybody find you uh, on the interwebs and uh, what you got going on you might want to promote real quick? Well, I'm I'm on and off on on Twitter uh, at Kiko Mora. That's K-I-K-O. Mora is M-O-R-A-H. Same same in Instagram, um, which I'm a little bit more active. Ah, (laughs) 
uh, on on that. And uh, I don't know. I'm I'm planning a couple projects, like you mentioned earlier. I'm I'm in development with my future debut. It's a co-production uh, Netherlands and Mexico. Cool. I'm also um, like working on uh, on a short version, uh, well, a short sci-fi, uh, which we're like doing some applying for funding and everything. So like it's it's busy and plus I'm a I'm a dad, so that's kind of like my main <laughs> job at the moment. But um, yeah, there, there's a couple of projects. You can check on my Twitter. There's a link to my website, which there's another link that leads you to my Vimeo. You can watch some of my films there if you want. And you really should. Uh, beyond just being a buddy and, and helping a buddy out here, uh, I've seen some of his short films. They blew my damn mind. So Kiko's oh, got you. a great eye. <laughs> and everything he was saying about uh, the Babadook and stuff, you can see that his passions run into his artistry as well. So check those things out and check out his socials. Thanks again. Thank you, man. Of course, thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks in the horror. Goodbye. Squad.